As I said, Paul's coming to the end of this great epistle. And um, it's interesting how he uh, comes full circle. In fact, I was thinking tonight, uh, as I was just looking over this before we came to uh, services tonight, how that we could go back to chapter 1 and read the first eight verses and then stop there and come over here to uh, chapter 4 and verse 10 and really have the entire letter about what he was originally writing them about. And that was that he was thanking them for their support. And basically, the first eight verses spends a great deal of time talking about how they have taken care of him and loved him, and they had a fellowship together with the gospel. And then now he's getting to the end of this book. He's coming back to that and how much they, they, that they had loved him and taken care of them, and they have a, a fellowship in the gospel. And it's almost like this stuff is in between. It's almost like it's in parentheses, like, uh, I'm writing you, but to let you know how much I appreciate the way you've taken care of me. But while I've got you on the phone, in a sense, let me talk to you about a few other things. And all of it ties together in the fact that he loves this church, and even when he talks about Judaizing teachers, even he, as he talks about unity, um, he, he still ties it all together with the idea that he wants this church to be strong, he wants it to survive because of all the churches he's ever had in contact with. This is the one that's the most special to him. And behind it all is the idea that whatever circumstances you are in, whether you are living in the city of Philippi, or whether you're living in a prison in Rome, you can rejoice, you can rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And it's all because we are in the Lord. But I bring that all up because we are at the end of this book, and Paul has come full circle, as I said, um, back to the idea that they are giving him money. And you remember how uh, last Sunday uh, we talked about, beginning at verse 10, how he rejoiced uh, because of the fact that they had been giving him money. But then he wanted to remind them, because he had just gotten through having this discussion about uh, how that um, outward circumstances have nothing to do with happiness. And so uh, he continues to say, I appreciate you sent me the money, but understand that money isn't everything, and I can be happy. I could have been happy without your money because he just got through saying, we can be happy regardless of outward circumstances. And he goes in verse 13 and drives it home by saying, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And then to make sure that uh, he's not making it feel bad because, like, he doesn't want their money, he says in verse 14, Notwithstanding, ye have done well that ye did communicate with my affliction. And by communicate, it's the idea of fellowship or taking care of my needs. And that's where we stop, but he's still continuing this thought of this idea of being thankful for the Philippian brethren. He says now in verse 15, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only." A couple things I want us to think about um, in this um, particular verse. First of all, he's, of course, talking to the church at Philippi, the Philippians. And um, he says, this is something that you know. And he says that in the beginning of the gospel. What does it mean Does he say when he tells them that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving? Not the rest of the verse, but just that beginning of the gospel. What's he alluding to there? All right, exactly. 
you read this right away, and you think, well, Paul's going back to all the way to the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel is when Jesus died on the cross. Well, that's not what he's being talked about here. He's talking about the beginning of the gospel there in the church at Philippi. And once again, he's driving home the point that from the very onset, as soon as the first person was converted in Philippi, that was a group of people who gave to him. Uh, you remember he met Lydia there, and as soon as Lydia became a Christian, what did she do? I couldn't hear you, Gray. Or did you not? Okay. She, she invited him into his house. This, hey, you're in town. You're going to stay with me. I'm going to take care of your meals. I'm going to make sure you're supported. And that kept continuing. So he's, he's building the case here at the beginning that at the very beginning you were taking care of me. But then he goes, when I departed from Macedonia, and that's where the city of Philippi is, it's in the Macedonia region. He says, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. So he's saying, I'm, I'm thanking you for what you did from the very beginning, you taking care of me. And now that I went on this missionary journey and he went to Saul, he was in seven different other cities after he left Philippi, roughly. And... Um, all those different places, guess who sent him money? They did. Guess who didn't? Nobody else. And so here was a man that was um, being able to evangelize the world uh, because of this congregation in Philippi. And so he's emphasizing again that, um, you know, I appreciate what you've done for me. Uh, from the beginning of this letter and the end of this letter, I want you to know how much I appreciate what you've done for me. Now, it's interesting that he, at the end of verse 15, just doesn't say, uh, you know, you gave me money, but he uses this particular phrase uh, concerning giving and receiving. Now, why does he do that? That's, that's almost weird. He's talking about what the church at Philippi did for him, but he uses the phrase, as you did this, and this is what we did. There was giving and receiving. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, that's, that's definitely a good way to look at it. Um, because of what they did and their giving, then others would receive. I like that. Anything else? Yes, yes. And all of, you, of what y'all are saying is correct, but you know me. Here in the Greek, this particular idea is an accounting term, giving and receiving. And I saw Fran shake her head a little bit. She does a little stuff with accounting now and then. But it's an accounting of turn, really of keeping the books. And it's an idea of giving a receipt. Receiving there is like the idea of giving a receipt. And so a lot of people, they think about what Paul is saying here, is that not only did they give him money, but he made a proper accounting of it. Um, I guess one of the biggest shortfalls that sometimes religious groups have is that they're not too open about how much money they have coming in and how, what they're doing with that money when they get through with it. Oh, I, 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 that's what I'm saying. It is. There's been a lot of religious organizations that get involved, you know. Uh, in the past, if a religious organization, or even one that seems to be doing good, if they wouldn't send me a, a um, financial statement, I didn't really want to do anything with them because I don't know where, where their money's going. I mean, is the director getting 99% of it and 1% of it's going somewhere else? And so what Paul is saying here is, evidently, we don't know for sure, but when he received money from the Philippians, he was the type of person, he wanted them to know where that money was going. How was it being spent? They were just sending him money and saying, hey, you just have at it. 
You know, he was going back for them and saying, listen, this, I spent this on travel. I spent this on food. Um, I spent this on bubble gum, you know. Don't know what he bought, but he, he, he gave them evidently some type of, of an accounting. Uh, many years ago, when I decided to get out of the uh, banking business, which is an accounting type business, obviously, and go back to school so I could uh, become a full time preacher and do some graduate work, um, I quit my job, and Karen quit her job. We sold a house, sold one of the cars because we had two at the time. And I went to different churches all over the country and said, listen, I want to go back to school. I want to preach, and I want you to support me. And there were some very generous people, even some people here in the city of Monroe that supported me. But you know what I did when they sent me money? I showed them a budget where I was going to spend it on, and I sent them, you wouldn't believe how many thank you letters, and told them what I did with that money. Because I appreciate it because it wasn't my money. It was theirs, and I was spending their money. And I didn't want them to think that I was going out and, like Paul and buying bubble gum, you know, okay? Because you buy bubble gum, you know, you just blow it. There you go, Grady. You knew I was building you up for that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, you knew it was coming, didn't you? <laughs> All right. So that's probably what's happening here. You know, he's just not making some fancy words here. Uh, when he's saying, no man concerned with me as giving and receiving, but ye only, he's saying, you know, if other churches had supported me, I would have treated them the same way I treated you. I would have gave you an accounting of what was happening. You know, I wasn't just having people send me money and I'm just spending it willy-nilly. I, I, I would give an account of it uh, because that is an accounting term. Um, so you get to verse 16. Verse 16 has caused some, some puzzlement with some people. Because he's saying that no church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving. But yet then he mentions the church at Thessalonica. There was a lot of places he stopped. Why did he mention specifically Thessalonica? He says, for even in Thessalonica. Like, whoa, let me tell you this. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again into my necessity. Now that's been a puzzlement. Why pick on them guys? And why does he use the word even here? Like, you know, let me tell you something. What you got? Okay. We like guesses because it makes us think. Okay. And so you're saying there's a little shaming going on here maybe. I like, I like that. We don't know for sure what's going on, but I like that. That he's saying, you know, here is little the church at Philippi, and they are a poor church. He's going to talk about that some more in just a minute. They are a poor church, and you're, send, you're the only one sending me any money. Not even that big old church over there that has the balcony and, and, and all that other stuff. They, they won't give me any money. And they, and they just put in a brand new gym. You know, you know what I'm saying? Maybe that's what he's talking about. We don't know for sure. There are some people who think that uh, perhaps he's making mention of the fact that the church at Thessalonica did support him. But the Philippians were so generous that even when he was in a congregation where he was being supported, they continued to support him. And that might be the reason why he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent money to me. Uh, we just really don't know for sure why he mentions this. And the reason being, as we go through the Bible, we can't find any reference whether there was any money transpiring or what Paul was doing when he was in the city of Thessalonica. We know he was there. We know he wrote him two letters later on, but those letters mainly deal with the second coming of Christ. It doesn't deal with whether or not you sent me money or I had money or whatever or what I did for a living when I was there, if I was poor or if I was whatever. 
So I'm just curious, does anybody that has a study-type Bible have any notes or anything like that? I just wonder what their slant on it is. Maybe you don't have that in your Bible. Mm-hmm. So we don't know for sure there, but that's just always been kind of a quandary that he's talking about how no churches communicated with him or uh, gave him money, and then he brings up Thessalonica. So either there was a church that did, and that's confusing, or he's saying there's a church that should have but didn't. But either way, the point of this is not to make Thessalonica feel bad, and we want them to still come to church here if they want to, Um, but um, he's praising the church at Philippi. Because they did things that other people wouldn't do, weren't willing to do. But then he says something that's even a little bit odder in verse 17. And see if we can figure it out. He says, first of all, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that they may abound to your account. All right, let's kind of break this down. He says, after praising them for sending him money, Even when nobody else did, he says, not because I desire a gift. In other words, he's not looking for more money. Um, Grady, go ahead. Okay. All right. And he's he's really going to point that out more toward the end of the verse. Remember, this whole letter, Paul, he's always never leaves what he was talking about before. In fact, you can almost keep piecing it back, and you keep going through the letter and say, well, that ties into that and ties into that. He's doing this thing once again. He's emphasizing to the church at Philippi that happiness really is not about money. Now, he's just got through praising them, and in fact, in just a few moments, he's going to talk about how useful that money is. But he wants to make sure, once again, not because I desire to give, because, what did he say earlier? I am, whatever state I find my in, I'm in, I'm content. And he's making sure they know that even if you didn't send the money, I'm still sticking to my original theme of this letter, and that is rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. If you hadn't sent me the money, I'd still be rejoicing. So he's been walking this tightrope all the way, starting at verse 10 down to this thing, saying, thank you for the money. But listen, money doesn't buy happiness. Thank you for the money, but I can be content in whatever state I find myself in. Thank you for the money, but I can still rejoice even if you didn't send me the money. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. It's not about outward things. It's about the inward man, and that's what he's been driving at all this time. Uh, Any other questions or comments about that? Okay. But then, after saying that, he says, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. He calls what they're giving as fruit. The money they sent him, he now refers to it as fruit. And it's a special kind of fruit because it does what? The rest of the verse says. All right. It benefits them. I believe there's old lost beatitude that people forget sometimes that Jesus evidently said. It's most more blessed to give than receive. That's kind of what Paul was saying here. He's saying this money is for my benefit, but it's really for your benefit. You are producing fruit as Christian, and it's been added to your account. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6, when Paul is talking about the, the church at Corinth and their giving, and he's making allusion to the church at Philippi, he says this, he says, He that soweth... Um, Bountifully will reap bountifully. Thank you, Gary. My mind went blank there for a minute. And he that soweth sparingly will reap sparingly. 
And that's God's law of sowing and reaping, but there in that particular case, he's applying it to giving. Now, there are some preachers out there today on television and whatnot that preach the gospel of prosperity. And they say, the more you give, the more money you're going to have. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying the more you give, the more God is going to bless you. And he's going to hit that in just a moment again toward the end of this book. Um, Just because you give $10 to the church doesn't mean you're going to find a check in your mailbox the next day for $100. Yeah, well, I know, I know. So I don't want us to be misunderstood when he says, he that soweth sparingly will reap sparingly, he that soweth bountifully will reap bountifully. The idea is that when you give to the Lord's work, God is going to bless you. And that might not be in the form of money, that might be in other ways, but you're never going to be unblessed for blessing others in the work of the Lord. And Paul spent a great deal of time in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 talking about our giving and talking about the church at Philippi. In fact, he alludes to the church at Philippi Philippi, and talks about how they gave out of their great poverty, and the reason why they gave out of their great poverty was because they gave themselves first. And money today is such a powerful thing that we want to hang on to it. Um, Sometimes people, when they're trying to decide whether to put money in the contribution basket or not, they'll have a dollar bill in their hand, and they'll be holding that thing so tight that George Washington will cry. That's pretty tight, isn't it, Steve? Make George Washington holler. Um, But my point is, as we're going to see with these Philippian brethren, people today oftentimes give the excess or what they think won't hurt them if they give. The church at Philippi gave time and time again, even though they were a very poor church and couldn't afford it. And he's going to talk more about that in just a moment. But that's his point right here in verse 17, how that, you know, that he could have been... Uh, He could have survived without their gift because it's not about uh, material things, but he he was glad that they gave because it gave fruit to their account. Literally, once again, he is using an accounting term that's used as an investment term. Uh, There's some looser translations that say uh, in this verse here, because of your gift, there has been interest added to your account because that's the thought here, yeah. Spiritual dividends, there you go. So this is, this is kind of an investment term here. When the Philippian brethren invested in Paul, God invested in them. The dividends are very good. Um, preachers have a, an old joke that uh, they work for some churches sometime that have a very, very um, poor retirement plan. And then they have to be reminded, well, that's really not the retirement plan. Retirement plan is on the other side over there. And uh, that's kind of what Paul was talking about here. Um, Money was helpful, but it was not the thing that brought him happiness uh, because that's not what causes him happiness, but he is happy because of what it did for them. And that makes more sense now when you read what happens in verse 18. He says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, the odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing unto God. All right, we got a lot going on in this verse again. Just think, we're just trying to get to the end of this book and have these closing words here, but man, there's some good stuff in here. First of all, he says, but, and that's in reference to what they have done. That's why the word but is there. He says in verse 17, um, I don't need the money to be happy, 
And I'm glad that you're doing this because of what it does for you. But now he uses the word but. Now he's changing it back saying this is something though that's useful. Because of what they did, the first part of verse 18, he says, I have all and abound. Now, somebody maybe with a newer translation will get a clearer picture of what he's saying, but he is saying something that since they sent him this money, this is his circumstances now. What's his circumstances now? All right, that's a good way to put it. In other words, whatever... Paul had to take care of from a money standpoint, whether it's to buy groceries or whether it was to buy stamps to send a letter to Philippi or whether it was to buy some more of that bubble gum. Um, He got money, everything he needed to cover all his expenses, and guess what? He had money left over. He's showing them how generous they were, that not only did they do the minimum that he needed as far as taking care of him, they they covered his whole expense, if you will. Here's this poor church covering every expense that he had there in Rome, and there was money left over. In fact, he says in the next part of the verse, he says, I am full. Now that, once again, it's kind of hard for people to figure out what he was talking about, but the term here in the Greek is the idea of I was once hungry, but now I'm full. It could mean he's using it in a metaphorical sense that he had hunger because he didn't have what he wanted and now he doesn't have that hunger anymore or he may be literally saying before I got your money I was starving and now that I got your money I finally get to eat and I feel full Uh, maybe what he's talking about but the whole point is he's trying to get them to understand how useful his gift was because he's still walking that tightrope of trying to get them to understand that, that money is not the answer to everything, that happiness comes from uh, rejoicing in the Lord but yet at the same time I want you to know this has been helpful all right very good because that's the bottom line here he's saying that everything that needed to happen because of your gift it happened it happened even from a spiritual standpoint but then he goes on and he talks about i wish betty was here tonight so i could point to her but he once again talks about the 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 messenger of this particular the one who brought him the money was epaphroditus he's the one that brought the money and it says that the things that were Uh, sent from you by Epaphroditus or delivered by Epaphroditus, he says it smelled good. What's going on there, Roger? They sent him some perfume or some cologne or what? Whatever, Epaphroditus brought in some, Paul said, hmm, man, that'd be smelling good. What's going on there? He says it smells good, yes. There you go, very good. Now, you've got to keep reading on a little bit further. When he says, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable unto God. Now, Old Testament sacrifices were always thought of that if they were prepared in the right way, they would be pleasing to God. And the smoke going up would actually, in a metaphorical sense, fill the nostrils of God and God would be pleased. Okay, and now we'll talk more about what Paul means about the actual gift he's talking about here. But why in the world would a sacrifice to God, from a man's standpoint, who's writing about sacrificing to God, talk about it having a pleasing odor or a pleasing smell? All right. From a spiritual standpoint, I'm talking about from a literal physical standpoint, though. Why did they associate a sacrifice with a pleasing smell? All right. Had a good aroma. Why did it have a good aroma, Steve? Smelled good to him. Why? Why would it smell good to God? Because it smelled good to them. And why did it smell good to them? Because, guys, we're grilling meat. 
You ever smell? I was outside the other day. I don't know which neighbor it was, but they were cooking something on the grill. And boy, I wanted to go knock on the door and say, can I have some? Think about what a sacrifice was. Sacrifice was burning meat. They were putting meat on the grill, if you will. Now, they didn't, the priests were able to eat of it. And whatever animal they were sacrificing was, you know, the animal that they would eat because God literally wouldn't eat the sacrifice. But one of the things they sacrificed were, were calves and, and cows and bulls. They were, they, were, they were putting a steak dinner out there. And they had that hot coals under there, and that thing was burning, that smoke was rising up. And, and they said, boy, I bet God thinks that smells good because, boy, I think it smells good. <laughs> I mean, that's literally what's going on here. That's the idea of it being a, a sweet odor to the Lord is everybody around the temple complex could smell that sacrifice burning. And two things they would think of, they would think about, first of all, well, there's a sacrifice being made to God because I can smell it. And the second thing is it smells good. Because um, there's something about that grilled, that meat cooking that smells wonderful. It smells better than about anything, at least in my mind. You know, uh, I like ice cream, but you smell it, it really don't have a whole lot of smell. I like sweet tea, but it doesn't have a whole lot of smell. But boy, somebody cooking a steak, I can do that. You know, I can smell that and it'll lead me to their house. And so I just want to make sure we understood that part of it. But now let's get to what Paul is talking about when he refers to their gift as being... A sacrifice unto God. How was their gift a sacrifice unto God? All right. It was a spiritual sacrifice in the sense they did what, though? They didn't actually put meat on a grill and burn it as a because as, we're living in the New Testament age now. They don't do animal sacrifices. What, Karen? There you go. There you go. And here's the thing we don't understand about giving. The New Testament is very clear that there is not a, like in the Old Testament, a specific amount that you give. Uh, The New Testament teaches free will giving. Uh, You can give whatever percentage you want. You can even give above and beyond what the Jews did, above 10% or a tithe, if you will. But here's the bottom line. Whether it's 3%, 5%, 15%, or 25%, it's not a gift to God if it's not a sacrifice. That's right. That's right. If it's just the leftovers, if it's just something that you can live without, and that's why you're doing it, this is not going to hurt me too bad financially if I do this, that's not sacrifice. I mean, that's the very definition of sacrifice. And you remember when David was on the threshing floor of Aruna, and he wanted to um, make a sacrifice to God, the guy that owned the place, he says, well, I'll just give this to you. You know, I'll give you everything you need so you can make the sacrifice. You remember what David told him? He says, I will not make a sacrifice to God that costs me nothing. Because the very definition of a sacrifice is it has to cost you something. Or it's not a sacrifice. It's just left over. You know, I've told you this story before, but there's an old story about the lady calling the Butterball Factory. You know, they had that 1-800 number. And she had a turkey in her freezer. It's been there for over 10 years. And she called the Butterball Hotline and asked if she could still eat the turkey. And the man asked her if the package had ever been opened and if it ever been taken out and thawed and all this kind of stuff. And um, he, he said, well, ma'am, I don't know. It's been there for so long, and I don't know if I'd eat it or not. And she says, well, okay, I might just give it to the church. <laughs> and that's sometimes the attitude that we have. But the church at Philippi, they sacrifice. In fact, he goes on in the text. In verse 19, he says, but... 
And once again, that conjunction there is, it's not even the typical word in the Greek for but, it's the word they, which means pointing back up to what he just said. They sacrifice greatly. But verse 19 says, but my God shall sacrifice or shall supply all your need according to the riches and glory by Christ Jesus. In other words, they sacrificed and they gave when they didn't know in the world how they were going to survive by sending this money to Paul. But he says, you know what? God's going to take care of your needs. Now, he doesn't say he's going to take care of your greeds. He's not going to give you everything you may want, but he's going to take care of your needs is what Paul is saying here. In other words, when we are willing to sacrifice, uh, sacrifice from the heart, that God's going to take care of you. And you may not have everything that you want or desire, but you're going to have your needs taken care of. About too many times in our society today, we're more interested, as I said, in greeds than we are in needs. But um, we're running out of time. Let's see if we can go ahead and finish this book. Verse 20. <clears throat> now he comes to the literal closing of the book. Um, now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul ends his letters a lot of times this way. And uh, it was a practice uh, by a lot of religious people that eventually uh, became known something that uh, people talk about in religious circles today called the doxology. You ever heard that term before, doxology? It means closing, but the word doxology comes from the Greek with the idea of spreading grace. Uh, we get um, grace and glory out of it. Now unto God our Father be glory. That's, where, that's from the Greek word that we get the word doxology from. Forever and ever, all men. So he wants to give God the glory through it all. And then he says, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. So we've got two different things going on here. First of all, he says, salute every saint in Christ. Now, if you look at the religious world today, what's, what would they think he meant by salute every saint? If you go down and find a statue or, or find somebody that has a St. Christopher medal on their neck or something and salute that person. What's that? Greet. Or you can salute or greet. It's still the idea. It's saying hello to people. But it's not talking about the super-Christians that sometimes the religious world talks about. When the Bible talks about saints, it's talking about who? Christians. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Okay? Hagios, the, the one who has been set apart, special. All right? And he's saying not just to the people there at the church at Philippi. He could have just said salute the Christians there at Philippi. But he says salute every saint. And they think the idea here is... When you get this letter, I want you to tell as many people as possible about what's going on with me. Let them know about my condition. Let them know how I'm surviving. Tell everybody you can about me. And so he wants to make sure that they have an opportunity to talk to any Christian at all. Make sure you talk to them. Salute them. Let them know what's going on with me. And then he talks about uh, the brethren which are with me. Greet you. And um, two ways of looking at this. He could be talking about those who were his companions right there in prison, but the only one we know about that would be uh, Paul, would be uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus is the one who was going to arrive with this letter in his hand, so it wouldn't make any sense, and then it just mean Timothy was there, and he wouldn't use the plural there. So he's thinking about all the Christians, the brethren there in Rome, especially, the, I believe, the ones that were on his side and were supporting him and helping him. And um, they wanted the church at, the church at Rome really wanted, to know, wanted the church at Philippi to know that there were people who were there uh, helping Paul and, and not to get discouraged. But then he sends one of the most amazing things. He says, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of the 
Caesar's household. Whoa, what's going on there? He uses the word chiefly by meaning if there's anybody that wants you to, to know about them and tell you hello, it's the saints that are of the household of Caesar. What's, what's happening here? And, and that's how the gospel spreads. I can't remember the name of the shampoo commercial now, but it always talked about the end of it. Our friends will tell your friends and your friends will tell your friends, and then everybody will be using that shampoo. Well, it's the same way with the gospel, but the gospel cleanses more than just your hair. Okay? Evidently, because Paul had beside him 24 hours a day a Roman soldier. And we talked about how that Roman soldier was exposed to the gospel by the things that Paul said, by the things that they saw going on in his life. And evidently, some of those soldiers either were converted or they went back to the household of Caesar and talked to some of the servants there about what was going on in the prison. And people began to be converted even within the very household of the emperor that might condemn Paul. And this, when Paul was in Rome, it was during the reign of Nero. So these were the household of Nero. But the seed has been planted, and God is now watering that seed and giving the increase. And it's going to take 300 years, but eventually the Roman emperor will become a Christian. But it all started with a man chained to a guard in a cell. And here we see the fruit beginning to happen that even members of Caesar's household, it might have been his servants, or it might have even actually been family members. We just don't know for sure. But it's now starting to spread within Caesar's family. And as I said, eventually, it's going to take a long time, but eventually uh, there's going to be an emperor by the name of Constantinople, or, or Constantine, who later made Constantinople, but Constantine, who would declare the nation of Rome a Christian nation. After all that persecution, after all that trouble and strife, Christianity finally wins. And uh, eventually they have something that's kind of a misnomer, but they called it the Holy Roman Empire. But anyway, let's finish this up. We've got th- about three minutes here, two and a half minutes. And he just finally says, uh, really the best summation of this entire book, when he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Um, King James has be with you all. And there's not a whole lot of evidence that that should even be in the Bible there. So I'm curious if somebody has a different ending. Be with your spirit. Um, Be with you all is is found in just a few manuscripts, and they're not very confident that it should be even in the Bible, but for some reason the translators of the King James decided to include it. A better, more evidence for, and more uh, more manuscripts have, uh, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now look what he's done here when he says that. Remember, this whole book is about joy. This whole book is about rejoicing. Uh, this whole book is, is not about the flesh, it's about the spirit. He spent all this time talking about the Judaizers who saying, it's all about the flesh, you've got to get the flesh right, you've got to follow all these Old Testament commandments. Paul says, no, it's not what it's about. It's about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's about your soul or your spirit. Um, all these problems are happening in my life, and, and, and I don't know what I'm going to deal with. Paul says, in everything. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, in prayer, in supplication, get, with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. Because it's not about the outward thing. It's about the inward man. It's about the spirit. And so he finishes up with this, this thought that, that's really the summation of the whole book. It's all about the grace of God. And it's all about the inner man. And if you can figure those two things out and understand them correctly, 
then there won't be a day that goes by in your life that you don't rejoice. Because that's really the most important thing. The inner man and what Jesus Christ has done for you through the grace of God. And that is the end of the book. We've got 15 seconds. Any comments? Anything anybody want to add? All right. We'll stop there. And next week we'll spend just a little bit on the book of Philemon.